this is Candace Williams from Rural Community Alliance. Um, this is the third um, episode dealing with rural challenges and a post-election 2020. Again, I want to apologize for it being such a delayed publishing of this episode. We recorded it around mid-November, so some of the stats you hear may be a little off, but uh, a lot of the information is still is still very much so pertinent to our rural communities. Um, dealing with a few health issues at the end of November, beginning of you know December, so... Um, I, I wasn't able to, to to publish this as soon as I'd like to, but we're here now, and I really thank you all for giving us your time and tuning in. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Representing Rural Podcast. I am Candace Williams, and today we're going to pick up uh, the conversation that we've been having for the past two weeks with two other staff members. We have Tanya Brodnax, who is the Southeast Regional Director and Lincoln Barnett, who is the Delta Regional Director. How y'all doing today? Good, how are you? Just fine. So we're going to get right into it. So uh, today we're just going to be discussing uh, post-election lessons, post-2020 election lessons, and rural challenges that we, we're still facing today. So, um, of course, education has, it's, you know, something none of us could have imagined it being um, right now. So if you all could just talk about um, like how the education landscape, how is it going or what's going on in your regions? You want me to go first? Okay. Sure. Uh, with the education in our region is still like, um, there's still no school to home, you know, information you know, a lot of the parents are finding out the information and a lot of things that the parents need to be aware of with the kids, you know, as far as that goes, you know, there's still no school to home yet. So it's still not a, a solid, um, I guess, system for children that are doing virtual learning, that's what she's saying. Right. And then a lot of parents uh, weren't able to afford internet because they were under the assumption that the school was going to pay for the internet, but that didn't happen. And so... Um, you know, the library having limited hours, they're only there from 1.30 to 5 because of uh, COVID. They're not being able to get their lessons out, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the city has uh, internet like two blocks from City Hall free, so there's a lot of cars parked there, but it was just like they didn't have the resources for the uh, internet connection. Well, for us, our, it's, we have a mixture of kids that are going to school, but we have a lot that are actually doing virtual schooling. And what the uh, West Memphis School District did was provide hotspots for those children. And I've kind of gotten, you know, mixed feedback from it because um, uh, one of the biggest concerns that parents had was that there was not enough, um, the children weren't getting any time with the teacher, you know, with the teacher. They basically felt mm -hmm. like they were being given an online packet to just complete work. Um, since then, I noticed that the school has went and is really trying to push everyone to be all virtual on Wednesdays. Uh, so mm -hmm. that the teachers can give particular time to those kids that are doing virtual school. Um, 
And so I know that that has, uh, that change has been made recently, but in the same instance, they still tell parents, well, if you don't want your child to do virtual schooling that day, you can still send them. We still gonna have the bus routes running, but they're really trying to push everybody to be in virtual on that day. But then at the same time, be open to um, still transporting those kids that don't want to uh, do virtual school. But that was done out of, uh, after parents really uh, took issue with the fact that their children wasn't getting enough screen time with their teacher at home. So it's kind of one of those things that looks like they're trying to navigate and work their way through. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of people were under impression that when they gave virtual school as an option, that those teachers would be able to teach their class in the virtual school in the same setting. And I guess that's not the case. I don't know if that's because of that the school district doesn't have all the technology to do that or what. But I have heard of some classes in which, you know, you have the teacher, they're teaching the class of students that are there and their camera is also on and the students that are virtual are actually engaged in that class. Okay. That's how yeah. many people thought it was going to be, but that has not mm-hmm. really been the case. Yeah, um, I, I would agree with you being a parent that's working from home and, and trying to do this virtual learning thing. Um, it's, it's been like a, a learn as you go type of deal from what I've experienced. Um, they are getting better. Um, the sessions are being recorded now. Um, so if a virtual student does not, is, can't make it to the live, they can go back and watch it. And they are making an extra effort right before Thanksgiving break to make sure that the children are integrated into, you know, the normal classroom setting. Um, and, and like you said, a lot of us parents, or probably most of the parents that chose virtual, we thought that was going to be the case, you know, starting out, but mm-hmm. that, it was not. Um, so, uh, you know, they are. Um, it, yeah, it's a learning to go. So, I mean, you know what? I, I, don't, I don't know. In your community, Candace, excuse me, did you guys have a deadline? Like, if you tried virtual learning at home and it didn't work out, were you able to be able to take the child to school? Because they were saying here in my school district, if you didn't sign up then, you couldn't bring the child after it didn't work out at home. Okay. Um, I don't know if it was a deadline starting out there was it was it was a hard deadline of you choose one or the other but after school started and <laughs> maybe a lot of parents experienced virtual learning especially how it started out it was just too much so they kind of opened it back up and allowed parents to start you know if they chose to send your children to school you know um but starting out that was not the thing like it wasn't even an option you had to choose one or the other and the 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 uh the outreach was saying hey when you choose this you're gonna be that's your decision until january you know the next semester but they changed it because you know it was so much with virtual learning down here so i guess they had a little grace and said okay parents you know if, if you you know find out or you feel that this is not the best route for you and your child then you can you know send them to school um, and, uh, I have to say that the district that my son is a part of, like, they've done a great job with 
you know, just making sure everybody is safe and maybe because it's a smaller district and um, I don't think they've had any case at the school. So uh, they just, you know, the staff, the teachers, everybody is just making sure that um, like caution is being taken and um, everything that they can to make sure everybody stays safe. So maybe that's why they feel so open and with, with allowing children and that initially chose virtual. And I guess for as for me, I know of some people. There was a deadline, um, but I, from what I've gathered, there's been some flexibility with that because I know mm -hmm. of students that had actually chose to return to school at the beginning of the year when they went and saw, you know, how it was going. They opted to switch to virtual, and they mm -hmm. were allowed to do so. Mm -hmm. um, so I know that there there were some you know hard deadlines at first, but then I it seems that the schools have really been flexible with yeah. parents that needed to change or make adjustments. Yeah, and as we were as we've been talking, I got a notification from the Washington Post. They said that New York City schools are shutting back. The, you know, in person is, is no more, and they're going into all remote learning. So. Um, <laughs> You know, cases are rising there, cases are rising in Arkansas. So, um, oh, there's been talk that a lot of schools will go remote after Thanksgiving. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly how many, but I guess we'll see, you know, I'll keep our eyes open for the cases, the COVID cases. So that kind of segues into the issue or the lack thereof of adequate access to quality and affordable uh, broadband internet service in our rural communities. Um, I have a hotspot, my son has a hotspot, um, but it does not work at home. We have to go uh, like up to the post office, the area where the post office is for it to actually work. Like this morning was a total disaster in his own uh, remote learning. Um, our internet, we have internet service at home, but it's the satellite, it's using it. It's trash, it's terrible. Um, and it just would not allow him to connect this morning. So we had to get in the car, drive up to the post office so he could connect to his, with his class. So um, internet service, uh, broadband, how does that look in, in, in your region? I'll go, well, first I want to say, just for clarity purposes, HughesNet is not in any way associated with Hughes, Arkansas. And I say <laughs> that because I've been asked that a lot of people in Arkansas have assumed that, but that's not the case. I think oh they're like in Minnesota or somewhere. Yeah, it's but, somewhere up north. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, internet for Hughes, broadband access is a uh, issue. Um, we've come to find out that, you know, we have two primary internet providers, which are AT&T and then Suddenlink. Um, Suddenlink seems to be pretty accessible throughout the town, but I hear it's not the best quality internet and there are times that people have had interruptions in their services. Um, AT&T does offer, you know, high speed internet, but it's only to mm -hmm. limit areas within the city um, and from my take on it as mayor you know I've had issues even with using um, AT&T broadband 
from City Hall. There have been times where I've been on a Zoom call or a virtual um, panel discussion and I have not came through clearly to the others mm -hmm. that I was communicating with because of those issues. So it's um, definitely an issue that we have to try to work towards. I'm um, presently actively looking at a um, grant through UAMS for there to be a, um, I think it starts off with them conducting a study to see about the feasibility and to assess the needs. Mm -hmm. um, and then if we're funded beyond that point, then we'll get the funding to actually have broadband installed. But basically it'll be a whole process of me getting with a internet service provider mm -hmm. uh, and then coming up with a plan of how to uh, provide that service in Hughes. I got a call this morning relating to um, broadband services from someone from UCA, and I haven't had a chance to give them a call back yet. But okay. it seemed like when they came out with the Arkansas Rural Connect, you know, the deadlines were so short on that. Right. And now I'm hearing that people that did apply within those deadlines are being told they're going to have to give their award money back because if their project is not completed by a certain date in this year, then they're not going to be able to um, move forward. Right. So I think that's kind of, I don't think that's the, you know, that's a, to me that only makes the problem with equity even um, more troublesome when you look right. at it. To me, that rule connect was, I mean, it, it's literally, the demonstration of throwing money at a problem. Mm -hmm. Knowing that, first of all, a lot of small rural communities, especially the ones that need these services, they don't have the capacity to apply for these grants. And then beyond that, finding a provider that, that wants to, you know, service those smaller communities. So it's... Uh, and then putting such a time, you know, short time constraint on the internet service providers to actually get the work done because in all actuality, some of these internet service providers are actually small entities. Mm -hmm. So they would like to do more projects, but some of them are being, you know, are having the experience of the projects that they have committed to, they're not going to be able to complete all of them because of this tight deadline. Exactly. Tanya, you were saying something? Oh, no, I was going to say that uh, with the Arkansas Connect, I thought that they were going to have uh, time, but we could, we reached out to them and they said that we were already at 99%, so we couldn't even apply for the grant. Wow. And um, they were saying that they were going to do something to connect with the um, Drew County, to sh yeah, Drew County pretty soon, and then we'll be at 125%. But Vibe already had made the uh, upgrades before the actual... Um, virtual learning started. Wow. So I so, guess we'll look that on that. Yeah. And I guess that's the thing, like they really don't know where, you know, the barriers are as far as like geographic wise, where in the state, you know, we need it the most and, and things like that. So there's still much work to do and that's definitely something that RCA will continue championing uh, during the next legislative session for sure. So um, I guess we didn't, I didn't say that Lincoln is the mayor of Hughes, Arkansas, 
and Tanya is a council member in Dermont. So they both have the experience on the city side, administrative-wise, of, of the happenings and what goes on as far as like uh, cities being able to apply for certain things. Um, so um, leading right into our infrastructure needs. So uh, um, issue one passed, and that was for highways. Of course, there was a lot of controversy around that because uh, the plan was for a lot of those funds to be utilized uh, or the first one of the first big chunks of the funds to be utilized for widening uh, I-30. Um, if you've been on I-30, you see that work is already, sorry. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but uh, right before election day, uh, the Arkansas Supreme Court, I believe, ruled that funds could not be used for that road because um, those funds were only supposed to be used for, for like four lane, up to four lane highways. So as you know, I-630 is six lanes and they're trying to, or they are expanding it to eight lanes, which will really, you know, cut through uh, some of East End and some of downtown, the more downtown Little Rock area. And that has been um, the concern uh, of people residing in that area. Um, so those funds are supposed to be used. It's a permanent tax now, of course, because it passed. Um, so those funds will be used for highways, uh, rural roads and streets and things like that. Um, I know I, I said on the, on, the, on the past episode, how bad our highways are down here in Phillips County. Um, and um, just, I guess you all give a, a a summary or, or or what's going on with with the roads and the county roads the highways in your regions of the state um are they still a challenge do you mm -hmm. have pretty good roads uh just give people a picture of what you know roads look like there there's need for improvement when it comes to our streets and roads um, within our city and within our county um, yes. With the one for, with the 0.5% um, sale tax that was on the ballot, um, I was for it because of the revenue that I know my city would lose if we hadn't lost those funds. And when I look at it, um, the city of Hughes would have lost um, $33,584 a year if, that, if issue one did not pass. Mm -hmm. I see Dermot as a city would have lost $67,332 if it hadn't passed. Elaine would have lost $14,823. Now, anybody that knows about streets and roads and the, the amount of money that it takes to fix them or to get them you know, up to par, they understand mm -hmm. that the, those numbers that I've just called out there's not even enough to really even do anything with mm -hmm. but that's but that's still crucial funding to each one of those municipalities that I named for their street department right and so to lose that money would have been detrimental so I'm glad to see that that um, is a permanent tax and we know we will have access to that funding but you know there is still much need that even with those annual funds, you would not be able to address. Now, I'm aware that Arkansas uh, State Highway Department has a program called Arkansas Street Aid, 
And I um, recently submitted my letter of request applying for that. And I won't find out until the beginning of next year whether or not we'll be approved. They came down and did an assessment. It looks like we're on track to being approved. But for, I think, for 11 streets that I need to get redone, that's going to be somewhere between the neighborhood of 250 to $300,000. So that's, but, you know, that's a program that's available to every city and you can apply for that funding. Um, And I think a lot of times, a lot of our leaders are either not taking advantage of some of the resources that they just don't know. What's available. Mm-hmm. Um, but even with that, I'm still going to, once that work is done, I'm still going to have, you know, we got way more than 11 streets in the city. Right. Yes. So you're still going to have some needs after that. So it's a constant need for improvement, but there are some resources out there that our um, towns and cities can utilize to get some improvements. I agree. And I think that's one of our problems is that I don't know if the resources don't trickle down here. I don't understand why we they don't take advantage of those opportunities. Um, and it, because we could have a lot of improvement in a lot of rural communities if they just reached out. I don't know. Even like, how would how did you find out about that information? Is it something that you just check regularly? When I went to my know? first uh, municipal league conference, yes. I um, stopped by the Arkansas Department. Uh, highway transportation's uh, table okay. and information there. Yes. And then later what I did was call and ask about the application process. And it's pretty straightforward. You basically as a mayor would write a letter stating and you specify what road work you need to be done and you submit that to them. And uh, when I did that, they end up sending someone down here and to take a look at the roads that I had recommend so they can get the actual, mm-hmm. I guess, mileage on each of those roads. Yes. And, um, and then now I'm just kind of like in a waiting phase to find out because they basically, the board takes a vote once they um, meet. And I guess at like the beginning of the fiscal, the new fiscal year. So that will be next year. And I submitted my stuff in June of this year. So I think I'm on track to get an approval for their program. That would be excellent. I know Mariana has applied for it previously and has been awarded. And when I inquired with them, they said that the city of Hughes had applied once before, but it was like back when the program very started in the very first year or so, and that was in like 2013 was the last time they had a request. Wow. So they said because of that, my chances were likely that I would get a project funded. So it's, you can't just apply every year. So mm-hmm. if you get it one year, you can't go back next year and say, okay, I need to get these, you know, you gotta, they gotta try to Staggered. Yeah, spread it out mm-hmm. among people, but you can reapply, you know, after you've been awarded one time before. Okay. Um, but like I said, it's just a resource that most people are not even applying for. Yeah. Yes, because we got it last, we got it two years ago and we got okay. some streets done. And then they were saying that we did have to wait until um, a time period to be able to apply again. Mm-hmm. 
that, that that's that, that's a resonating theme between the conversation with you all and the conversation with Matt and uh, Candy is that there are resources, but you have to reach out to them to these entities because they don't they don't know you have these certain issues or these certain problems. Um, I know Candy specifically mentioned the Arkansas Rural Water Association. Mm-hmm. And how much of a resource that they had been to parent uh, before uh, they joined the Central Arkansas Water um, System. So, um, with water systems and sewer systems in your community uh, and in your regions, um, could you talk a little about that? I know Lincoln can talk about that all day, but just briefly, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like the status and you know how easy or. How hard has it been to um, access those resources needed to keep up your systems? Okay. Well, one, the Arkansas Rural Water Association is a great resource for cities and towns, especially if you have a membership, uh, because they will come out and provide on-site technical assistance when you run into issues that you or your staff um, need assistance on. Um, They've been a great help to me. Um, What I found out is that the water infrastructure in the Delta Southeast region of Arkansas is old. Mm -hmm. It's very old, and to be honest, it all needs to be replaced. Mm -hmm. Um, We're constantly dealing with, you know, water leaks from old piping that was the, the, the original water infrastructure of this town. And so that, that can be costly. Um, especially on small cities with very limiting budgets. Mm-hmm. So there are some major infrastructure needs when it comes to our water and wastewater system. For me, that's a challenge that I had coming into office because we had a um, project that's mandated by the state that needs to be completed. And so yeah. I had to... Um, <clears throat> work to find the resources to be able to fund that um, without having the city to take out any new loans because presently the city of Hughes is paying on some old loans for some work that was not done properly which caused the issue that requires our wastewater treatment center to need repairing and so I was I've been fortunate enough to um, find grant resources through the Delta Regional Authority and the Arkansas Economic Development Commission to fund that uh, rehab project uh, with no additional cost to the city without us having to take out any new loans. And But the unfortunate part of that is that once they finish that work, we're still going to have some major infrastructure needs that need to be addressed in our water department just because the the aging of the piping is so old yeah i think isn't it like maybe three inches beneath the ground it's like right there on the ground i mean like on the street it's not that far down like you know you think piping would be like maybe four inches down or five or you know well ours is really ours is not that close. Ours is much deeper than that. But I know that there, I've just traveling through the Delta region as the Delta regional director and seeing water towers overflowing um, 
And by me being a mayor, I actually know what's going on there. That means that that, that city or town is having to run their water uh, wells on manual because either their control panel may be burned out. And so they can't run it on automatic. And so that's sometimes why when you're driving down through um, going towards the lane or you see a Wabash uh, water tower overflowing, it's because they got some infrastructure needs. They need a, a water well that, that can run on automatic. And it may be that they have one, but the control panel may be burnt up. Um, because when I got into office, that was one of the issues I ended up having. And we had to run our um, water well on manual for a time until we can get that control panel fixed. And that was, you know, I had got several estimates on it. It was anywhere from four to seven to $8,000, depending on who you could get to do it. Um, right. And when you're talking about a small town with, um, you know, not much in reserves, that can be very costly for a city to have to um, try to get. And so you have a lot of towns that just have to make do with what they have. I cannot no. tell you how many times um, I have seen a water tower overflowing. The first <laughs> time I saw it, it scared me so bad. I called the city, you know, who was over the tower, and I said, it's water shooting out. <laughs> out of your really? water tower. I've never seen that. And I, and and I, it scared me because I was like, "Oh, what is going on?" So I, I I immediately called the city, and they were like, "Okay, okay, we're gonna go out and see what's going on." And um, I was on my way to pick up my son from school, and uh, when I came back fire, it was whatever it had stopped. But I started to see it so much. I was in rural communities. I was like, "Okay, this clearly has to do." with the, the system and it possibly being an agent or like you just said, you know, these certain malfunctions are going on. Um, and it's sad because water is, it's a basic need, you know, clean water. Is so a, do you is, think those towns that had that problem were not informed of the resources that Lincoln is talking about or not? Well, they may not know. Well, Maybe they don't know. A, this is a maintenance issue when okay. it comes to the control panel. So like in our instance, when our control panel was burnt up, that's because that chlorine that's in the system. So most wells have, are co connected to some type of system of chlorine. If that system is not hooked up correctly with the right nozzles and everything, that chlorine can leak. Once, that could be very dangerous for whoever's working in the water department going in and out of their building. But yeah. two, that chlorine, if your control panel is not in the most secure type of box, that chlorine will start eating away at that wiring in there, and that can cause your control panel to burn out. Now, just, you know, taking at the age of the equipment and how long you've had it, stuff is going to wear out anyway. And what ended up happening for us was that, you know, I came into office and chlorine had been eating at that control panel for so long, it just eventually burnt out. And when I saw you know, took note, I remember, you know, seeing water towers in other cities and towns where they were overflowing. And what happens is the water tower will overflow once it has been filled to capacity. So if I'm right. running a well on manual, at some point that well is gonna run enough and fill up my water towers. And once that water tower is overfilled, if that 
well does not turn off and you can't do it automatically if your control panel is burned up. So if somebody doesn't go and manually turn it off, those wells are designed with spill out um, connections so they can uh, let water out. And so when you see a water tower with water coming out, that's because that tower is really already full and can't hold any more water. So that they're designed to have an area so they can drop water out. But that's, you know, in those extreme cases where you're running on manual and somebody's not able to get to it once it's been completed, you know, once it's right. been filled. Um, and everybody may not be equipped with the technology that tells them when their water towers are filled. We have a system that lets us know that, you know, what level each of our water towers are at. And once they're filled, then that um, device sends a communication back to the well so that it knows to turn off. But if- and, and I feel like, you know, li listening, you know, to you with your knowledge that you've gained in a little short time, you know, like that's why I feel like, you know, people running for office for small rural communities, it can't just be your best friend or your neighbor or the lady at the church. It has to be somebody with some type of clerical or some administration, you know, some type of you experience. Have to have to a real, I would say yes. you have to have a real concern to, you know, yes. because a lot of this stuff you, you're going to learn hands-on and but I, you're not going to do well if you're not really committed to it. And if you're not, and if you're afraid of paperwork, because everything has paper attached to it, you know, That's or true. some type of documentation. Of and if you don't want to do paperwork and if you don't like faxing and emailing corresponding with things and people, you're, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And that's the beauty of RCA with these rural communities is because some people, they have people that you can partner with that will give you that information. You have people that you can partner with, you know, after you get the information from RCA that will help you in this rural community with the matter. But you just have to, you know, utilize it and put it to use because yeah. it's... It's just not going to happen. That's right. My my grandpa, my maternal grandfather used to call that get up and go. You got to, yeah. you know, you got to have some get up and go about you if you're going to call yourself a leader of anything, especially a rural community, because a lot of the resources are there. It's just a matter of you doing the, doing the work, doing the legwork to go and find these resources like Lincoln has done. And, you know, Absolutely. it hadn't been two years yet or coming up on two years. And, and and he had a, a, a sewer system or oh, oh, was it wastewater? Is that the wastewater. proper name for it? He came I've into office with so many problems, but he has been able to have, fun, have funding through the Delta Regional Authority, uh, the state of Arkansas and other entities to help fix problems that, you know, that his leadership you know, he came into, like, these issues were already there. Well, and, but, um, and I've heard, you know, even in my uh, administration, it's just like, you know, they will get an email from someone saying we do telephone polls. And they'll be like, you know, did you ever call back the person? No. And the person will be like, we're going to do free telephone polls to the whole community. We just need you to send us an email back saying you're interested. <laughs> it's just, think, you know, real simple things like that. You know, just before you tell someone that you're not interested, or your city is not available for that just find out what they have to offer. They may have something to offer you. It may be a, a partnership because if you come to a rural community, you already know they don't have any money. So you know this organization or business is gonna come to help. And if they have, don't, if they were looking for money, you can immediately tell them we don't have any and they'll leave you alone. But it's just, I, you know, like you just have to have a real, you know, 
willing to help and you know be concerned about the city that you're running for office or in office that's true so one last thing and i'll i'll let y'all go <laughs> um so uh, i meant earlier um on this call we mentioned we talked about how COVID 19 is you know the numbers are rising uh, all across the country it was like that after halloween deal it got a lot of a, a lot of the, the states most of the states and um in arkansas our numbers um we've we've been averaging like over a thousand for the past week or so um i believe last friday we were it was the highest that we've been it was like 2300 or so um it wasn't more than that <sighs> so i know people you know there's a fatigue setting in on on life being you know just so unusual now and people are maybe tired of wearing the mask so so what's going on but we know you know it's been proven that masks work and, and following the cdc guidelines they work so what's what's going on in in the delta region and in the southeast region as far as covid is concerned well this morning i learned that our school closed this morning because they had several cases at the school and on the basketball team and of course we had a harvest uh, fest with the, for October following also. But um, I think it's really got from our community is like waking them up a little bit, like letting them know that it could be right here in your backyard to wear your mask because we had some people wearing masks, we had some people not wearing masks. And um, the kids were wearing their masks, but under their nose and, you know, and school was going on pretty much like a little bit, you had masks visible, but it was kind of going on as pretty much as, you know, business as usual. So now the school is closed and they say they may not open it up until after uh, Thanksgiving. So um, it's look, looking like a little, people are trying to do a little bit of like shopping and buying paper goods and stuff. And it's like, you don't see that many people out starting of like, since the weekend, it kind of like it's, the streets are getting a little empty again. But um, it's in the school district now. I honestly feel that um, because of the lack of national leadership that we've experienced during this pandemic has really uh, put a lot of lives at risk and have left people either confused or feeling that they have to take certain um, stands on a matter yes. that should not even be political. You know, the wearing a mask for your safety during this pandemic should not have ever been politicized the way that it has been. And as a result, you still have a good mixture of people that do wear a mask and several that don't because of whatever reason. And that's been unfortunate. Um, from a city government perspective, it has been a challenge to you know, tell people they need to wear their mask and to enforce it. And the reason why I say it's been a challenge to enforce it because one, you know, we didn't get a mask um, mandate from the governor until well after it was obvious that it was needed. But once that yeah. mandate came down, um, then you have the issues with prosecutors who if a police officer writes a person a citation for not wearing a mask or uh, being found to be uh, disturbing the peace because they go into a business without wearing a mask. You have prosecutors throughout this state because of their political positioning that they're not gonna uphold it in a court of law. 
And so when citizens know that, oh, well, you can't really write me a citation for not wearing a mask because right. it's going to get thrown out in district court, then you're just basically, you know, really leaving it to almost like a su survival of the fittest type thing. And to me, that shows that there's a true level of a lack of concern from, from you know, key people that we have in position of leadership. And that's troubling because people are losing their lives and people are getting sick and this um, virus is spreading. And then yes. you got to think about the number of people in our regions that, you know, either don't have access to um, health care. And so how many of how many other people that have died and we just don't know that they've died because of COVID, because they may not have gone to the doctor, but they may not have had access to a doctor. Um, that's just really um, troubling. And yeah, but but I what I've noticed is that after the election, and down here I've seen you like you're 100 right. They were like making a stand and not wearing the mask, but I see a lot more masks now. You know, before the election. You know, now you know. Got some people that act like nothing is yes. going on, but but a majority of people have kind of like you know waking up a little bit since the election, and you know, there's no, you don't have to make that stand anymore. You know, you should wear mm -hmm. your mask. Yeah, because it got really quiet. I would, I would, yeah, I would, I would have to agree, Tanya. I, it was like something triggered. I feel like yeah, after yes. the election, and um. Like I like I I take Highway seventy um, most of the time when I'm after go to the office in Little Rock rather than taking I forty, just because you know it's a slower paced road and I don't have to deal with you know any road rage or anything. But um, there was it's a store that I would stop at and uh, like it would be so many people in there without masks. But I stopped the other the other last week on my way back home. And everyone had masks, mm -hmm. all races. Like everyone had masks on. Um, you know, they went in the store, did what they had to do, came back out. And and I'll never understand, you know, as you all have said, like how something that's a benefit to not only you know personally, but to the the public who you're around, how that became controversial, how that came uh, seemingly a partisan. A uh, political issue. Uh, I'll never understand how mass came to be what it is now. <sighs> but as an organization, we we support following the CDC guidelines, taking care of yourself and your neighbors. And um, RCA has purchased masks for members and sanitizer and cleaning supplies and anything else yes. that, that some members yes. may need, and we'll continue to do that um, throughout this. Uh, throughout COVID-19 COVID being something that we're dealing with. I want to thank you all for giving me your time today and um, sharing uh, what's going on in your region. Um, and uh, yeah, do you all have any closing words? Nothing other than stay safe to uh, wear your mask and um, continue to strive to do good in your rural community. It does. Yes. yes. Thank y'all. Thank you. Bye-bye. No